0: Good morning. I would like to introduce to you the Yuan family, if you would come up now, please. And Dr. Christopher Yuan has taught the Bible at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks at conferences on college campuses and in churches. Christopher graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005 Wheaton College graduate school in 2007 with a Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis and received his Doctorate of Ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan have experienced much heartache due to a prodigal son who embraced homosexuality, but God has given them the grace to rely on his power to change the unchangeable and focus on their daily renewal and transformation. Angela and Christopher share their amazing journey in their memoir out of a far country a gay son's journey to God a Broken mother's search for hope a hundred thousand copies have been sold and, and it's now in seven languages Dr. Yuan's newest book is holy sexuality and the gospel sex desire and relationship Shaped by God's grand story. So we're very grateful that you guys are here with us. Thank you
1: America, where money grows on trees (laughs) and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong it was. The first night I stayed at my friend's round apartment in the slum of Harlem near Chinatown. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wear masks and doorbells and <laughs> a trick-or-tree. <laughs> I said to myself, what have, got, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came to America a few months later, and we married the next year. I also, at that time, assuming just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. (laughs) How naive I was. (laughs) We were not Christian then. After years of unresolved issue and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that year, May 15, 1993, our son, Christopher, came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her, of making our son gay. My son Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we shall all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responds quite differently.
2: You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change. That he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come me with a knife, it would have hurt less in my mind. Christopher, who was closest to me and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville. Where well, I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all with only my purse and a pamphlet from the minister. I bought on the train and thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems, never been much a reader. On the train, I began to read a pamphlet which explained the plan of salvation that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that, just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I caught a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.
1: After six weeks... I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very excited. She told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. (laughs) I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I started to go to church with her. Then a friend of ours, invite us to a Bible study, study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of and love for God and his word. Well study the word in my church and in BSF, I also surrender my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead, as our son Christopher walked further and further away
3: from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet, and I began living openly as a gay man. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. Some, some are, some are not. But unfortunately, that was part of my story. And if I tell you it, I have to be honest about it and tell you the whole part. But I also need to tell you that when you encounter Christ, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs. But like my classmates, I didn't have much money. If I was going to do drugs, which cost money, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. You see, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My father's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctor. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, It's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that. Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mother knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education. Even more important than career. You know, the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, But then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401K. And in essence, we are often forcing our children to do the same. How? Think about this, parents. Do parents put more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done on a daily basis, getting a better grade, getting into a good school? Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon their children following Jesus. It's no wonder why many youth grow up in church, go off to college, and they leave their faith behind because maybe actually they weren't really worshiping God in the first place. Nothing is more important than following Christ. But can I be totally honest with you? I was not happy about my mother's decision. She wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day, because according to the world, I had it all money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God.
2: Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew he's the biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them, and simply tossed them into the trash.
1: My wife and I knew the only way, if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. On the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused but I left it on his counter anyway and walked out the door. We found out later he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. (laughs) It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son, Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many others. She wrote out some of her prayers and following is one of those prayers.
2: I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won. Until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day and there I will finally pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on the sun, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. But I give you my fears and tears as I trust Every moment I plead, I prayed those prayers for eight years. And it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God didn't change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of His grace, as God drew us to Himself each and every day.
3: Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep, were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German Shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among societies despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that often get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I have those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years before that, that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So, mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. I just imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no braiding words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, that it's God's kindness. That leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul is not saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was... Excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, (laughs) because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she shut the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And it called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking on the cell block. And you know, I really was doing all that I could to stay to myself. You know, I did not want to mingle very much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. (laughs) And I passed by this garbage can. And as I looked at this mound of rubbish, I thought to myself, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class, suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made, but now I found myself among common criminals, trash. My head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. Something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over. I picked it up. It was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking, oh, this is the Word of God. And I certainly wasn't thinking, this is the answer. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God and it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword able to cut through the hardest of hearts exposing my sin my rebellion and it wasn't a pretty sight and I thought things couldn't get any worse I was wrong a couple weeks later I was called into the nurse's office the prison guards handcuffed me Chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shoveled into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I just knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read, H-I-V positive.
2: A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His solemn and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years. The news of his HIV status was like a death sentence. A verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumbled up the steps And dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet under the cross. I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart—the soft and sweet string of a hymn. Fill my ears And repeat Over and over It is well It is well With my soul
4: When peace like A river Attending away when sorrows like sea So... Seated.
3: A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself and just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me there was graffiti profanity gang symbols but someone had written something else in the corner and it read if you're bored read jeremiah 29:11 For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God who is using the words, Pen by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I'd done in my past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems, no more struggles. Far from the truth. It was at that point that God actually began convicting me of my sin, convicting me of the idols that I had, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just could not let go of, which was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But as I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. Remember, I'm a brand-new Christian, which means I know very little about the Bible. And I thought, I need to ask someone who's studied the Bible, who's went to seminary. (laughs) The chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So, with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding Biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. The chaplain said the Bible blesses same-sex relationships, so I'm like, well, if it does, let me actually read that in the Bible. So I went through the I was looking for any shred of evidence, any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I thought, surely it would be in there. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man Pursuing monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or, abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? <laughs> by freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First of all, I learned that abstaining from sex... Is actually possible. I know that might sound really weird for you, but I was not raised in the church. I didn't learn, you know, read the Bible, and the world kept telling me it's not possible, but it actually is, who knew? Second, I learned that sexual abstinence is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. <laughs> Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex for a little while, that actually my sexuality. Should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. And that is so true. But unfortunately, as sinners, we like to add to God's truth. For example, I added, so therefore God does not want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible several times, I learned. That unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my attractions. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I had mistakenly thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual, which meant the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality may be the right direction, but it is too broad. It's not the goal. Too broad. And if you think about this, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Instead, God said, be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, because we will struggle, we will be tempted. If Jesus Christ himself was tempted, what makes us think we won't be tempted? So the focus isn't whether I'm struggling, but the focus is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. Because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate is not whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I have to yearn after God in total surrender. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence... I realized that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I had to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called and collected my parents. And I told my mom and dad, I say, I think God's calling me to a full-time ministry. And then I asked him to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones, <laughs> They mailed the application into the prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out, until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? LAUGHTER I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's and exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the incredible honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So we co-authored it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two, she, my mother wrote all the, all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. But you know the best part is how God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. This book now is in seven different languages, including Spanish, Chinese, Korean, and also uh, it's... There's a a study guide at the back that people are using, uh, support groups, uh, small groups. And parents are using it because we found out that Christian high schools are using this book, the memoir that I wrote with my mom, as a textbook. We never thought that a memoir would be used as a textbook, but I hope you realize this. I hope you all realize that our children today are being flooded with resources on sexuality. All from a non-Christian worldview. They're being inundated with all these stories of people who are coming out, they're gay, they're so happy, but they don't know Christ, which means they're lost. Just like we were before we came to know Christ. Let me tell you something that I think is very important. The main responsibility to teach our youth today should not belong in the hands of the public schools. I think five of you. Okay, five of you. Let me say that again. The job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? Amen. And you know who else it doesn't belong in the hands of? Hollywood. Media. Internet. Internet iPads, iPhones, their peers. You know whose responsibility it is? Parents. And you know who else? Grandparents. Any grandparents in here? Any great grandparents in here? You know why? You know why I say grandparents and great grandparents? You have too much time on your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, though. Think back, grandparents, great-grandparents, when you were younger, when you were a teenager. How much did you listen to your parents at that time? Maybe you have more of a listening ear to the grandchildren than the parents do. Are we using it To throw our children, this next generation, a lifeline when they are drowning in a sea of confusion, a tsunami of misinformation. Are we throwing them a lifeline or are we standing back and doing nothing? Let's change that. Anyone in here that wants to change that and make a difference? We're not exposing our kids, because I know you might think, well, I've got really young grandkids or I've got really young kids. You know, when is it too early? This is 2020. That's not the right question to ask ourselves anymore. Grandparent, grandmother, great-grandfather. That's not the right question to ask. When is it too young? You know what's the right question? When is it too late? If you're not the first people to talk to your kids about sex and sexuality, I believe you're late. Why? Should the world be the first to talk to our kids about sex? I gave this challenge at this church in Oklahoma. I mentioned this in the first service. Um, and this grand—and this is like rural Oklahoma. Um, this church was in the middle of cornfields. Like I went, nothing, like just cornfields. Look outside, just corn and, and tornadoes. That's it. <laughs> and this grandmother, like... Right after the service, she ran back to the book table. and Like I saw her coming in. She was like this. She goes, cause she goes, I need 10 books. I was like, wow, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10. One for myself, she said. Nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail everyone in the book. I'm going to read it with them, and then I'm going to discuss it with them. That's a grandmother that's actually taking seriously The God-given responsibility we all have to not shrug it off, not to forfeit it to the world, but take it back. We must equip this youth on biblical sexuality. Silence is no longer an option. Amen? But how do we talk to our kids? How do we understand biblical sexuality? Because oftentimes when we hear about biblical sexuality, it's something like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And actually, those are important messages, but we can't stop there. We cannot build a Christian life on God's no. What is God's yes? So I wrote my newest book called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, partially because when we think about sexuality, we think sexuality is all gray, right? Fifty shades of gray. No, it's black and white. So a theology of sexuality, I call it Holy Sexuality is this, only two paths. First path, if you're single, how do you live? Chaste, sexually abstinent. Second path, if you're married, biblically married, the only definition that God gives us, man and woman. If you're married, how do you live? You're faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So holy sexuality is either chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. But amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And God has such a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? (laughs) Only God can do that. God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I look back upon our lives, most of which were far apart from Christ. And I see a lot of, bad decisions that I've made that have resulted in some lasting consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But you know, I realize something. I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room has ever been promised here tomorrow on this good earth. Don't we take it for granted? You know, it took contracting this virus that has no cure for me to realize a very important truth, that as a child of God, I must live with the sense of urgency. You know, this world we live in today, it's a crazy world. Our country is so divided. We hear about these earthquakes, threat of terrorism, threat of war, shootings, people dying and crashes. Life is short. And you know what I realize? This world we live in does not need another good Christian. A good Christian who might go to church every Sunday, nice person but doing little or nothing for the kingdom of God. We don't need another good Christian. But you know what this world needs? You know what this world demands? Are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the left says, or what the person on the right says, but they only care what their heavenly father says. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency, who know they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Our days are numbered. You know, every one of us have been created for greatness, not in the eyes of the, in the world, like, oh, look at me, how great I am. That's worldly greatness. I'm talking about great in the eyes of God. And you know what that means? Being the least of these. Not coming to be served, but coming to serve. Because whether you're ready or not, there will come one day in the blink of an eye where every person will stand before our God, our Creator. And I really hope He can look at you in the eyes and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you knowing that you hear, knowing that you save, knowing that you are our strong tower, Thank you, God, that your arm was not too short to save. Lord, we praise you that you are a righteous judge who sent your Son to die for us in our place, the perfect Lamb of God. And I pray, Father, that his death would not be for nothing. That his death, Lord, would make a difference in our lives, Lord. Lord, that people would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior who died in their place. Lord, I pray that we would be salt and light, recognizing that every day is a gift. Lord, I pray that we would raise up this next generation not drowning, but that they would be built up with your truth, O God, that Jesus is Savior, but also that you have given us your beautiful truth of sexuality in Scripture. Lord, help us to proclaim your goodness with truth and grace, and we look with anticipation For when you return, and we ask this in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah, and the people of God said, Amen.